Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation. I'm really excited to have with us today Emma Kerr, who is the Senior Vice President and Head of Strategic Partnerships Europe for Visa. And we are going to have a fascinating conversation about payments, about commerce and Web3 commerce, and what the future of the ecosystem looks like. So with that, Emma, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for having me, Lex. My pleasure. So I'm going to start with the trickiest question of all, which is, what is Visa? It's a great question. So Visa is a payments network. In essence, we make sure that when you transact at a merchant point of sale, it makes it all the way to the bank that your card is actually issued from to make sure you've got the right amount of funds, you're good for the credit, etc. Authorizes that transaction and then makes it all the way back to that merchant point of sale device to say you're, you know, the transaction has gone through or has been approved. And so Visa sits really in the middle of 100 plus million merchants and retailers and around 15,000 banking institutions. And our goal is to simply make commerce as seamless as it can be for everybody. I love a couple of the words in there that I want to unpack. And one of those is commerce and another one is merchant and retailer. You know, I think kind of in the payments industry world, these are numbers that you grow, but I think just getting a little bit of color in terms of what commerce means and what merchant or point of sales means would be great. Like, is it just a store that I go into where I swipe a card? Is it Amazon? Is it a website? Is it a mobile app? Like, what is in that definition? And then how do you think about commerce? Like, what qualifies as commerce to you? As it relates to commerce, we're really talking about money movement. Anytime you, as an individual, want to move money, either paying, you know, an Amazon or paying a small merchant, or you want to send funds to a friend, that's another endpoint. That's all what we kind of consider commerce at Visa. We really focus on that money movement component. And then as it relates to retailers and merchants, to be fair, it's probably a, a lack of terminology that the industry has evolved to. But given that we are focused on money movement as a whole and any set of flows that could take place, Retailers and merchants as a, as a nomenclature is probably too limited because you might want to send money to an individual. You might want to send money to a massive enterprise to pay off an invoice as a small business, right? You might want to send money to the government. All of those entities are really endpoints or receivers of money movement. And so we typically use retailers or merchants just because it's the easiest to understand quickly. But at Visa, really, we're looking at a much broader set of, of payment recipients. Gotcha. Yep. One of the ways I've thought about it is also attaching money movement to economic activity. Like whenever somebody 
puts in labor and generates something or is exchanging something or there's some economic transaction where you know there's utility generated and there's a consumer and a manufacturer and there's a consumer willingness to pay and so there's some growth some economic growth some gdp generated that has to attach to our systems of value like money and then that money has to actually flow and commerce and payments in this way are kind of attached to the human condition of being creative and making things and making things for each other. And so, you know, one of the questions I want to explore today is how Visa thinks about the Web3 ecosystem and whether there is potential there for that economic creativity. But before we get there, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your journey through Visa, how you came to be in your position and kind of what kinds of experiences you've had in the company and kind of the shape of your experiences, like what you've learned about payments and the payment networks as you spend time there. So I'm a bit of a, you know, self-defined payments nerd, as it were. Payments has been largely my entire career. And I've worked across three different geographies, North America, Asia Pacific, Europe, during that time, along with really all different parts of the payments ecosystem. So I faced off into banks, into processors, into acquirers, into retailers and merchants, and across a variety of different functions as well. So I've worked in strategy, product, and sales, all at Visa. In the last four years, I've been based out of London, despite the accent, I know, and was really first and foremost a part of our UK and Ireland team, driving a lot of industry initiatives, our deals, really where the the country and the market was focused on evolving with the payments landscape there. And now I'm leading our strategic partners within Europe. And so in this role, my team really faces off into three core client sets. The first is big tech. And the second is fintech, which is you know includes crypto. And the third is issuer processors and enablers. So these are parties that help third parties get onto the payments ecosystem without necessarily being a financial institution. And so within that, crypto remains a, a large focus for me and my team. But as I said, I'm a bit of a nerd across payments in general, not only because I've had the breadth of experience over you know, the decade plus career that I've had, but I've seen how different payments looks in every single market I've worked across and how exciting it is. You know, I don't think I, I uh, started in payments thinking this was my life's calling, but certainly the industry has changed so much. It doesn't feel like we're ever solving the same problem twice. And that keeps things really, really interesting. I'm really curious in this kind of transformation of the industry and a visa while you were there, you know, from the outside, and I think you joined in 2011, you know, from the outside since the late 2000s and 2010s with the rise of fintech, the types of financial or fintech businesses, or even generally like tech businesses that became more and more valuable were those that behaved as platforms and as networks. You know, starting with the social media age and the creator economy and all this stuff, like the narrative has been about how do you build a layer or an infrastructure or something that is abstract and data-driven and API-driven and maybe captures and pushes value around that 
can support lots and lots of other businesses. And so Amazon's built like this, as well as a number of the large tech companies, right? Whether Google, Apple, all of them. And in financial services, the power centers in the past were the big investment banks, right? The manufacturers, the factories of product. And I think over that time period, things have really shifted and the networks have become much more appreciated for the role that they play in the economy, especially if they are associated with financial flows. Can you talk about through your career at Visa, like what that felt like from the outside as well as from the inside? Like, is that right? Has there been a change in the appreciation of the Visa strategy? What's that transformation been like? It's a great question. First, I think that you're right. You know, Visa is lucky to operate in, and have built a two-sided network, which is, you know, just as you described, Amazon and Google and all these players have, have developed a marketplace, as it were, where sets of, you know, you need both sets, both sides of the ecosystem to, to want to play. And we very much view our role as ensuring that everybody gets value out of participating in that broader ecosystem. That retailers, merchants, endpoints, you know, individuals get value as well as as well as banks. And it's been a balancing a balancing act that we as a company do not take lightly. We are constantly looking at ways in which we can innovate for the entire ecosystem and innovate to make sure that everybody benefits. And you know, that remains everything that we do is in kind of a multi-year time horizon because that's how long it typically takes to to affect innovation throughout all of those endpoints that we've talked about. But I do I do think you're right. There are very few other companies that operate at such a scale as as Visa, live in 200 plus markets, all of which are very different. And despite those differences, there is a consistency that Visa affords in the consumer experience and in the data that kind of flows through our network. And so it again remains a very privileged position and one that we we consistently evaluate and make sure that we're doing the right thing by everybody. Yeah, I think many financial businesses were not architected in a way that allowed them to really benefit from the rise of the internet. Like as there is more e-commerce and as more stuff gets stacked on e-commerce, Visa is still the underlying rails. As there's more proximity payments and as the payment methods all change and point of sale sort of machines change and people fight over that, you're still connecting to the Visa network underneath. And so I think that is a pretty special position to be in. To shift into crypto and Web3, before we get there, I want to just double-click one more time on the concept of the network of networks. What is that? Because I think that's become a narrative about the firm. And what are some examples of other networks that in the past Visa has successfully integrated, has been able to connect into the overall fabric of what it offers? So... I think the network of networks really emerged because, you know, just as I, I mentioned, we're, in, we're always looking at our approach to, to the broader payments ecosystem and saying, hey, does this, is this going to be what's needed in the coming 10 years? And one of the things that I think the company's really appreciated over the last several years is the fact that there are tons of networks out there, just as you've said. 
And in our view, we really want to be a catalyst for connecting them and ensuring that those networks are getting the value of our network. And that ideally we're those, you know, we're all making each other better and stronger. And so the network of network strategy is really Visa saying, we want to enable other third parties to gain access into, into VisaNet, into Visa, and be able to, you know, transact and use the touch points and the endpoints that we've built up over, you know, the last 50 plus years. And so, you know, an example of that would be probably a couple of different things. There's First is B2B Connect, which is really an ancillary network that, that Visa has helped to create, which operates off of the distrib- a, a distributed ledger. And it enables banks to make large ticket cross-border business transactions and settle up directly without Visa in the middle. So that's an example. Another example would be the likes of a plus ATM network which connects into Visa and, you know, gains access to all the, all the endpoints that we have. So it's both existing networks and the networks that we're looking to, to create to improve upon what we've, what we've been doing for the last many decades. Got it. And do you see the blockchains, the crypto networks, as another category of these things, or are they categorically different? We absolutely see them as a, as a very similar type of network that can, that can plug in. So it might be worth noting that Visa has been really in and around the crypto space for, for years now. We employ hundreds of folks around the world who touch crypto in, in some way, shape, or form across risk, product, marketing, finance, so much so that the, the concept of crypto is very familiar within, within Visa. We aren't necessarily focused on the underlying token price, but far more the infrastructure, because we think that is in keeping with with where we play today and, and the role we'd like to play in the future. And so as a first step of what has been Visa's crypto journey, we supported on-ramps and off-ramps, enabling folks to use their crypto in the real world. So very much to your point, Lex, connecting into that broader network to, to offer consumer value and enable crypto exchanges to offer different types of consumer experiences. And a few years ago, we started to explore things like USDC settlement and are continuing to explore some early crypto product ideas. All to say, we very much want to support crypto and and find ways of enabling these types of transactions and, and this type of consumer value proposition that I think crypto can provide. Let's go back to the concept of commerce with the idea that there is some underlying thing that can or should be created, some sort of utility or or value proposition. And once there's something good to be purchased, a user comes along and is happy to pay for it or is happy to consume it. And then that gets supported by payments processing or some version of money movement. When you look at the Web3 space, broadly speaking, so software that's written on blockchains that can do smart contracts and computation. What kind of commerce are you seeing? Like, are there things when you look at the industry, at the Web3 industry, that are interesting in their ability to create demand for transactions or to create a supply of digital objects? Like, 
what are the things you're seeing that say, okay, well, this looks like economic activity that we're seeing in other parts of our business. It just happens to be on these computational rails. I would maybe start with the, the theory of the case for Web3, which is really that Web3 is going to drive speed and efficiency by using blockchain technology to streamline and automate processes. And so one of the use cases we've seen up, we've seen with that has been really the rise of, of NFTs being used as for loyalty. So just by way of example, the Kings of Leon released their latest album as an NFT. And that gave any of those NFT purchasers access to enhanced media, limited edition vinyl, a whole host of interesting things that were attached to, to those NFTs. That offered, you know, for the, for the two weeks that Kings of Leon were minting those NFTs, they made $2 million. And so certainly we see things like NFT have real value for both the purchasers and, and the minters. And so we see that as a, as a really great use case that we would expect to continue. Another one of my favorite kind of NFT loyalty examples is in Argentina, where NFT Ticket partnered with an airline in TravelX to issue an NFT upon purchase of ticket rather than what you would think of as a traditional airline ticket. But this NFT had the ability then to be resold about 48 hours before the flight was due to take off. And so, you know, we basically saw, well, in, in that world, if the consumer's plans change, they then have the ability to resell that ticket, recoup more of the funds than they would have otherwise. The airline takes a cut or takes a fee of that sale and splits it with, with the other parties. And so, you know, we've seen that as maybe not addressing, well, rather offering a lot of consumer value. I think what remains unseen right now is that while the theory of the case of Web3 is in fact to offer, you know, streamline and automate processes and offer speed and efficiency, it's not yet there. So for everyday transactions, like you, you know, a grocery store transaction, cost and speed remain inhibitors for, for capturing that type of commerce. But I think that, you know, at least from a loyalty perspective, there are a lot of interesting use cases popping up. And the other, the other place is, is in B2B, so business-to-business transactions. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but we have seen, you know, Visa has built B2B Connect. It's a non-card based payment network that enables bank-to-bank cross-border business transactions, all running on distributed ledger. And that distributed ledger enables folks or the banks to directly settle with one another for large value transactions. And that addresses cost and speed in many use cases. And so really to summarize is where we've seen commerce use cases pop up taking advantage of Web3 have right now been in loyalty and in certain instances B2B, but the everyday spend categories, I think are still waiting for for lower cost and and faster transaction times. Let me push back just to get some definitions down. So in the case of loyalty, in the case of the NFTs, you know, on the music side and so on, if you're a skeptic, you'd probably say something like, why does it have to be a non-fungible token? Like, what about the NFT that I really need? Like, can't the airline just have some place where I can 
you know, refund my ticket or sell my ticket? Like, what is it that the NFT standard or, you know, digital object wrapper, what does it provide to the purchaser that makes it valuable in the first place? Why not just use a database? The answer to that would be twofold. The first part is that there's already a marketplace that exists for NFTs today. You already have folks that want to buy and sell NFTs. And so perhaps that is a more efficient marketplace than the ones you've just described. The second is there is a social equity within that community around NFTs. And that's a value. And so I think for those two reasons, we're seeing loyalty these loyalty use cases really take hold within the NFT space versus any of the alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the point around the market venue is one around kind of standards and public goods. So you can have many different companies offering up various rewards or whatever it is wrapped in the NFT standard. And then all of these things essentially are interoperable. So they can travel between the systems of different companies. It's not you know, some proprietary piece of software that a firm has to manage, but rather it's the deploying of, you know, in the same way you would put up a website on the internet and everyone can access that website, putting up a digital object makes it so that anyone who understands how to use the infrastructure of Web3 is able to interact with that digital object, to own it, to hold it, to transfer it, to redeem it, to use it in other protocols and so on. And then number two is you've got all of that market infrastructure already in place. So if you want to trade it or sell it, you don't have to stand up an additional exchange. There's already open source financial software that runs in these locations and there's already supply and demand for things. Usually there's supply and demand. Sometimes there's supply and demand, but there are something like 600 million Web3 addresses these days. And so there is supply and demand for participating in these financial venues. I think getting that out of the box as a public good is really a big benefit. How do you see the sort of commercial activity or the NFT standard or any of the value propositions in crypto evolving over time, like the challenges around transaction processing or scaling or or sort of the functionality of something just being a JPEG. Like these seem very moment of time objections. How do you see it evolving? I think we see long-term value for applications of Web3 that drive consumer value propositions for a broad set of folks outside of just the crypto natives. So I think, you know, today a lot of what exists requires an expertise that goes beyond the layman user. And to your point, maybe it's a flash in the pan, maybe it's a moment in time. And so it's a question of what is going to persevere over you know, decades. And short answer is I, I don't know yet, but I know that there have been evolutions of whether or not it's the internet or the first iteration of crypto that have made these things much more usable. And so where at least I have a lot more confidence in seeing long-term value are in places like gaming where you know, you've got developers today creating NFTs that are embedded into these environments, which has meaningful social value, social equity to all, all the folks that engage in that, in that medium. And so I would expect that, you know, where there's things that are attached to, to greater human needs, you know, consumer ease, 
that have some value that transcends beyond the technology that it's riding onto your point JPEGs, those are the types of things that I would expect to endure. I think that in the same way that we've seen a transition in websites from you know just flat representations of text to interactive websites that can move around to websites that connect into servers and are then you know software like Google Docs and so on I think the digital objects that we're seeing today are the first primitive it's that sort of the geocities version where it's just animated gifs and social identity or social equity as you put it but over time I think we're going to see software be captured inside of these standards, and they're going to be much more interactive and much more performant. If we look in the other direction, the other theme is things like, can I use my Bitcoin to buy a sandwich at the local shop? You know, and I think plugging into the existing payment processing architecture is something that a lot of the crypto exchanges first tried, thought that they were going to build a big business out of. You know, Coinbase had the product where you could support payments, but it looks like the volumes didn't quite materialize. One of the key questions for me is also, how does the crypto asset class get used in traditional commerce, in you know merchants where, whether it's a terrestrial location and you can come in and pay for something with Bitcoin, or whether it's a e-commerce provider that takes crypto assets as a means of payment. I know this is something that the crypto exchanges early on had tried to integrate and create as part of payment processing rails. Coinbase did this, I think, early on as well. How do you think about the integration of the asset class into payment rails? Like, Is this something that merchants are going to support more and more? Are there still challenges to doing so? And how does it evolve? It's a really great question. I'd say that I would expect the merchant adoption is going to be gradual in this space or continue to be gradual for a couple of key reasons. The first is technology. So, you know, we don't yet have a scaled, resilient, secure, and fast technology in, in that for rather for everyday transactions in the blockchain environment just yet. The second is is trust issue, and I would say particularly as of late, that even though folks are very happy to do or to transact on the blockchain in general, you do still have to trust the app that you're engaging with or the app that is the primary avenue into the blockchain environment. The third is volatility in currency. So, you know, for any average merchant, you have a cost of goods sold that you need to ensure you recoup. And so if you start accepting cryptocurrencies as you know the settlement currency you might find yourself underwater for some transactions and that volatility is going to make it really hard for you to do business in an ongoing way and so i think there's got to be a solve for that for the average merchant and the fourth is that the consumer value proposition is still being developed for the layman for the mainstream and so it's not to say that any of those barriers are insurmountable but the early merchant adopters, I would expect, are going to be the ones where the above reasons don't persist or don't present an issue for their business model, like a gaming where you know your cost of goods sold for a digital tank or digital armor is zero. And so at least you don't have the currency volatility. And you know some of those other issues that I've just described aren't an issue for your business. 
I think some of these things are getting addressed in the coming generation of crypto infrastructure. So for example, on the price volatility side, right, stable coins have been kind of a key value proposition of the sector. And especially in the current market environment with high interest rates and so on, a tokenized US dollar is very interesting. The quality of the tokenized US dollar has been pretty questionable, but USDC, I think, is one of the best solutions out there, if not the best solution out there. And I'm curious as to whether that gets integrated or that becomes a kind of like a, a key part of the infrastructure. Like, is the USDC network one of the networks? Is it one of the rails that you think about? And similarly, on the scalability question, transaction throughput question, there is a ton of work going on in the Ethereum world of layer twos of blockchains that attach to the core settlement layer of Ethereum that are quite performant in their ability to have lots and lots of TPS. And so, you know, there's rumors and kind of interest swirling about, you know, are the card networks going to have their own version of like a layer two on the optimism stack or something like that, that is able to process lots and lots of things and then occasionally anchor things back to Ethereum. So the question would be, is Visa watching these developments? And then is there anything you can say about how you're thinking about whether it's USDC or the technology upgrades that are hitting the Web3 world? We are absolutely watching developments closely and with and with interest. I agree with you. I think that the USDC is one of the best options to solving the price volatility. And so that's why a couple of years, I, I don't know if it was a couple of years ago or a little while ago, we had announced a USDC settlement pilot. So really introducing USDC as a settlement currency for the first time within the entire Visa ecosystem. And I think we will continue to explore USDC or other types of settlement currencies in so much as they aren't as as volatile, um, as we've just mentioned. And then in terms of those, you know, the application layers, we are absolutely keeping a close eye on, on the developments there. And as TPS improves overall, we will be very interested to see how that develops and whether or not it's a build or partnership or what have you, I don't know uh, from, a, from, a, from a visa standpoint. But I can tell you there's, you know, there's a lot of focus on it. So it sounds like given kind of the spread of the creation of these various fintech and crypto networks, the world is becoming very multi-rail, right? Like you've got the embedded finance and open banking themes that are trying to, in each geography, kind of tie together the banking systems through APIs. You've got a bunch of different blockchains with different capabilities and different stable coins and different ecosystems trying to stand up economies or app stores. And of course, you've got, you know, the national infrastructures all over the world are getting upgraded or downgraded at different times and so on. So you've got so many options for people. And at the same time, people don't really make payments decisions. This is stuff that is not front and center, the brands are not front and center for the average consumer about like, how do I pay? They just want the payment to be done. So, you know, how do you think about the complexity of this payments environment, which you've mentioned before? Like, how do you think about all of these different rails and, 
you know, is there a way that Visa can support that, can continue to be hyper relevant? Like, what's a way to keep up with this pace of change? We increasingly see a multi rail world, not least of all because people are increasingly aware of just how important money movement is and how important that is to to the underpinnings of the economy. And so to your point, you've got a lot of local networks popping up and alternatives popping up around the world, which are going to mean that I think the payments world will continue to be complex. I don't see it simplifying anytime soon. And for, for Visa, we just want to add value to all money movement, whether it's on Visa's network or, or beyond. And so our strategy has been to connect all these money movement networks, including crypto and distributed ledger, in, in our network of network strategy. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I appreciate that the, the recent news has probably underscored the point that we're, we're a little ways off before crypto becomes mainstream in payments or financial services. But Visa is you know, continuing to invest in innovation and security to enable, to enable our overall network of network strategy. We, we, can, we will continue to focus on crypto. Sounds pretty promising. I appreciate the long-term time horizon as well, because I think that's the required commitment to see this stuff through. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today and for opening up these topics. If our audience wants to learn more about you or about ways to engage with Visa or connect, where should they go? Find me on LinkedIn, Emma Kerr uh, Visa. Or you can visit our visa.com website and, and there's an email address for our, our corporate comms team. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Lex. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the FinTech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things FinTech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.